Okay, so um, today we're going to continue with the um, uh, Anatta Lakana Sutta, which is SN2259. And that's the teaching that the Buddha gave second after the Turning of the Wheel Sutta that we read previously. And this is the one that this one he also gave to his five ascetic friends that he practiced with before his awakening. And um, uh, so they're not arahants yet. And so this is the one that, well, we'll get to that at the end, that uh, works for them, shall we say. So um, what we had gotten through was uh, the sort of, I call it the catechism of um, saying that a certain of the faculty of the five aggregates is impermanent and therefore what is impermanent is uh, suffering as opposed to happiness and from there the deduction that therefore it is not suitable to regard it as it says here this is mine this i am this is myself so he convinces them at least intellectually that um, it doesn't make sense for us to think of the various components of our mind and body that we tend to identify with as some kind of a permanent, unchanging, happiness-producing self. Um, this does not negate the <clears throat> Western psychological self that some of us have been conditioned with in our upbringing. You know, the idea that we're a person in the world with certain characteristics uh, that's true enough on some level. It's probably good to think that way because we get socialized that way. That's how we raise children. Uh, it's not like that's wrong, but <clears throat> it does lead to suffering if you believe it's the absolute truth. So we might be open then, based on this catechism, to other ideas. I think he's trying to open their minds to other ideas. So let's see, did we get through the paragraph um, that says any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present? Did we do that one? Anyone remember where we stopped? Val is nodding. Okay, so we did that one already. So he's trying to just, um, oh, that's right. This is the one where he gives us the way to practice with this. Okay, so then um, just to remind ourselves, could someone read the paragraph with all the ellipses that says any kind of feeling whatsoever, any kind of perception whatsoever. Could someone read that? Um, Carol. Good morning. Any kind of feeling whatsoever, any kind of perception whatsoever, any kind of volitional formations whatsoever, any kind of consciousness whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all consciousness should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Right, thank you. So he's making pretty sweeping statements about these. These are the five aggregates that we tend to identify with. Um, are there any uh, 
any comments or questions at this point? I wasn't here last week, but um, I did wonder about the uh, indication or the, um, they said suffering is not permanent, so that happiness is permanent. Um, is, did you discuss that already? Where, where are you pointing to? <laughs> um, the paragraph that says, what do you think because is permanent yeah, or okay. impermanent? So and they so say impermanent, and then your question suffering. was? Well, so it says, what is impermanent, suffering or happiness? And suffering is impermanent. No, it so, says, is what is impermanent? suffering or happiness okay so it's referring to things that are impermanent okay are things so. that are impermanent suffering or happiness and mm -hmm. they come up with suffering mm -hmm. that might not be so immediately obvious uh, okay. to us does that make sense the difference a little different in the grammar there okay that helps yes so, yeah it doesn't say so is suffering impermanent or, or yeah a happiness Happiness is not necessarily, because I thought, well, maybe he was referring to the happiness you have when you're um, fully enlightened. But it just is that neither one is permanent. They're both impermanent situations. Well, no, the grammar is different than that. Okay. So where oh. it says, is what is impermanent, would it help to change it to English that says, is that which is impermanent? suffering or happiness okay that's what he's asking are impermanent things mm -hmm. suffering or happiness and so then oh, so the, it's a it's a okay. it's a i'm sorry one or two, I see you know, now. Is it this one or that <laughs> okay. one okay so they choose that that impermanent things are is suffering, our suffering right and impermanent things are not happiness okay thank that's you that's what they're trying to say <laughs> it's maybe the english was a little awkward there okay um but interestingly, the whole point of the, you bring up an important point, which is that uh, what we learn through the path is that suffering is impermanent, actually. Uh, we think, mm -hmm. you know, we, we are mired in it some of the time, um, but the whole, the path is possible because suffering is impermanent, actually. Um, but that's not the point, that's not what's being drawn out in this particular catechism. But um, I mean, that's what the Four Noble Truths say in the end. Suffering is fortunately endable. Okay, so he's made this sweeping statement about um, how it is with all these different components of the self, or components of our experience. And then he, um, we get to the next paragraph, which has the word in it that we'll have to uh, talk our way through. But seeing thus bhikkhus, would somebody read that paragraph? It's just after the one Carol read. Yeah, Leanne, that'd be great, thanks. Seeing thus bhikkhus, the instructed noble disciple experiences revulsion toward form, revulsion toward feeling, revulsion toward perception, Revulsion toward volitional feelings, revulsion toward consciousness. Experiencing revulsion, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. He understands, destroyed his birth, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of being. Okay. So let's pause there. Um, 
This whole paragraph is repeated in many suttas. It's part of a um, construction called a pericope, which is just a, a, a standard boilerplate kind of text that you'll see in a lot of places. And the word that we need to be concerned about is a revulsion. Uh, that's kind of a strong word. And um, Bhikkhu Bodhi actually has changed his mind on that word. So he no longer, Dan is celebrating. Yes, he no longer uses that. And Sujato uses a different word. Uh, if you're looking at that translation, do you, do you see what word he uses? He uses disenchanted, um, I believe. Did I get that right? He, um, uh, so the word in Pali is nibida, and it, um, it means, yeah, no longer enamored with something, or even to the point where you, you would not uh, be appetized by it. I think that's actually where it comes from, not appetizing. So um, he's essentially saying that disenchantment in the positive sense. So disenchantment is a word that we don't like that much in the West. We're just, we say we're disenchanted, we're kind of depressed or down, or you know we've lost our lust for life or something. Um, but here, disenchantment is meant like the opposite of being enchanted. If you're enchanted, you've been placed under the magic spell by the evil queen, and uh, you go through life not seeing correctly, or maybe you swoon and are unconscious until the prince kisses you. I don't know, I'm bringing in Western images, but uh, enchantment is not such a good thing, uh, in fairy tales at least. And so to become disenchanted is to wake up and to see things as they are and to be able to see clearly and wisely, um, as it says here, to see things as they really are with correct wisdom thus. And so there's this sense of disenchantment being a, a, a good thing, to no longer be under the thrall of these things. What do you guys think of the word revulsion? Does that not work for you? <laughs> Everyone's shaking their head. Yeah, it's um, it's an extreme one. I think it's kind of a monastic idea. Dan, you're unmuted. You're actually, we can't hear you. Try your other microphone. How about now? Oh, there we go. Yeah. Oh, good. So Jato actually uses disillusioned. Disillusioned, okay, thank you. Well, yeah. that's the same, yeah. But um, I, when I was reading this, I, I noticed, you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi has a real proclivity for like going to the most unappetizing place <laughs> in his translations. <laughs> and um, I, not so much now, but I know, you know, when I first started working with the suttas, it makes it very difficult uh, because this language is so strong um, that it's almost, it puts us in a place where we naturally are repelled by the language. So revulsion doesn't leave us any room to think about what that might mean. It's extremely clear. It's, yeah. Um, so just to, to point out um, really the, the sort of necessity of looking at other translations and listening to other teachers, uh, you know, that, that's, that revulsion is a word, for instance, that I don't think I've ever heard Gil say. And um, 
you know, to explore these things in, in ways where we can actually um, work with them rather than be revulsed by them. Yeah, so yeah, revulsion is a very strong word. I guess, yeah, it's kind of the extreme form of unappetizing, right? To actually feel nauseated by something. Um, Susan, did you have a comment? Yeah, I was gonna say that that fits for me with alcohol. So that's a kind of a positive sense of revulsion for me in that. Okay, so when you've been addicted to something and you no longer are, there's a, a revulsion of not wanting to take that in anymore. Yang Kui, did you have a comment? Yeah, I was going to say something similar, not so much alcohol, but like today, I really find that we're very effective. I find it much more effective than this sort of, you know, disillusion because I've been working with those really the softer forms. And like at a summer, it's like, yeah, just go with it, revulsion. <laughs> now, these are just the five aggregates, not, nothing substantial. Just the selfing gets so strong that mm. I find that right now for me, this is a good instruction. Like okay. you know, similar to the raindrops and different things that are so nice and, and then like, yeah, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> it's time. <laughs> this is great. I love this range. Um, I think what we're hearing here is that there are uh, periods of practice where certain, um, you know, the more ascetic modes of the teaching will appeal and certain periods of practice where the kind of more layperson or softer modes are going to appeal. And you know, knowing that the suttas, which are very big and heavy, and there's a lot of them, have a big wide range, you can um, nourish yourself in the right way as, uh, at various times. Yeah, I can. I think there is. This is actually this word revulsion. I don't think it's an everyday kind of word. You wouldn't, because we live with form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness all the time. You know, that's our experience. That's our world of experience. And so, I don't think it's that helpful to think that you should be continually revulsed by, uh, repulsed, revulsion by being in the world, because. Uh, until you're completely free, that is what we got, you know. Um, but there are, and this, and the last two comments point to this. There are ways in which these words are quite appropriate, and they can um, speak to us maybe in ways that the softened words don't at certain periods. And there is a time in practice when you're going through, say, the stages of insight that um, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw described, where there is a phase where. Um, all of experience becomes oppressive. And it's a, it's a distinct phase in, constant, in the development of vipassana practice. As you see impermanence, then you see how everything is changing in your experience. You realize there's nowhere to land. It's like being on sand. Um, your experience is draining away second by second. This happens on retreat usually. And then there becomes, there, the mind says, ah, get me out. <laughs> and that's a pretty good, revulsion is a pretty good description of that. And the mind needs to have that degree of strength um, because as Yankwe said, the selfing is so strong uh, to actually let go um, sometimes if, if you're going through these particular stages. So um, I'm not advertising that this is how it should be all the time, or I'm not saying this is the best translation for just a general text that we'd be reading, uh, but it does point to a specific experience. Yeah. Dan. Um, I was just thinking uh, as we were all talking that um, 
uh, this may be completely left field, but there's a certain relational aspect uh, to these words, uh, flavor of, uh, uh, that's a difference between the dissolution, disenchantment, and revulsion. And then my sense is that uh, um, the relationship that we experience in uh, and disenchantment especially is uh, simply a kind of dropping away. Uh, we're not really doing very much. Mm. Uh, the attraction has just fallen off. Revulsion has much a much stronger emotional yeah. character to it. I'm I am revolted. That is, and there is some kind of statement being made. I don't want this anymore. Yeah, I think that is being said. But the question is whether it's said with aversion or with wisdom. And maybe this word is just uh, evocative of aversion for most of us, as opposed to the wisdom of being able to actually let go. Let things fall away. Yeah, it does sound like there's a, could sound like there's a self. It gets better after that, though. So experiencing whatever this word is, nibida, let's say, experiencing nibida, he becomes dispassionate. So that's another word that we sometimes think of negatively in English, but it's very, it points much more toward what Dan was just talking about. Of There's not a lot of doing there. The mind just is not going to get riled up about anything, ruffled by anything. Um, there's a real cooling off. The word is actually viraga, which means decoloration. So it fades, fading away. Not like the world drains of its vibrancy, but there's a fading away of that gripping on or pushing away that the mind's always so busy with. It just fades into this coolness. And it says, through dispassion, his mind is liberated. It's very interesting that um, I may make a little geeky poly comment. Um, at that point, there's a shift in the sentence in the grammar. Um, and it suddenly becomes unclear what the subject of the sentence is. So Bhikkhu Bodhi solved the problem by putting his mind in brackets. Because it, it is true that the earlier ones say, because we have this instructed noble disciple as the subject of the sentence earlier. <clears throat> the instructed noble disciple experiences revulsion. Experiencing revulsion, <clears throat> excuse me, he becomes dispassionate, or she, um, or they. So then there's a subject, but then um, there's this shift. And in the grammar, there's sort of this vague passive construction. Excuse me. Um, and it isn't really clear who the subject is. And so the only thing that could possibly be the subject is that um, later, um, it's actually not until the next sentence, which we haven't read yet. All the way down in the next sentence, it says, while this discourse was being spoken, the minds of the bhikkhus of the group of five were liberated. So that is taken to be the reference of the unknown subject that vanishes in the middle of this paragraph. Well, since it says in the next paragraph, the minds of those bhikkhus were liberated, it must be that his mind is what is liberated. But there's no indication of that in the sentence. It just vanishes. Um, Pali has a strange construction that allows that. So then we have when it is liberated, whatever that is, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. He understands. And then, then there is, well, it actually doesn't say he again. So that's a little bit awkward English. 
And so then there's this phrase, destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of being. That is another repeated phrase that is used by arahants when they wake up. So that, that will be their declaration to the Buddha. So, um, yeah. So this is it. This is how you declare arahantship. You should memorize this so that because you're going to need it in the future someday. Um, any uh, comments on this? <coughs> Pratibha, do you have a comment? You're sometimes no, you're not muted. So, okay. Oh, excuse me. I thought I was muted. <laughs> I'm just chuckling to myself over this one, you know, because I, I love the idea that, um, oh yeah, suffering is impermanent and one day we will be liberated. Yeah. So the fact that we get to proclaim, destroy this birth, the holy life is, <laughs> et cetera, kind of amusing to me. It would just be curious. <laughs> yeah. That's what everybody says, apparently. When it, when it happens, <laughs> you'll be inspired to say exactly those words. <laughs> Um, in Pali, of course. In Pali, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I mean, we can laugh at a little bit, but it's, you know, it's been preserved in the tradition as, as being the, the understanding of um, what happens. So there is in here a, um, an implication. You know, I, I'm, I'm always the proponent of saying that the Buddha doesn't really require us to believe in rebirth, but uh, you know, destroyed his birth, uh, pretty much says that he thinks he's not going to be reborn. Um, holy life has been lived. So, you know, we got to the goal, essentially. This does contrast, by the way, with the Mahayana tradition um, that gets a little uh, less clear on there being a goal. <laughs> so, and then we have this idea of living the life of a bodhisattva that will go on for tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of births, always coming back to save other beings and so forth. Whereas um, the earlier tradition is clear that there is a goal and that you get there and then you say, what had to be done has been done. <laughs> I'm done, I did it. Um, so it's, it's a little different flavor. Of course, we know the Buddha had many, many lives to prepare for this one where that happened, but I just point that out and that we get some shifts in how people understand the path and the goal. So just to finish it off, would someone like to read the last paragraph so that we can liberate this group of five? I'll read it. Kurt. Oh, Val, okay. Okay. Um, that is what the Blessed One said. <clears throat> Elated, those bhikkhus delighted in the Blessed One's statement. And while his discourse was being spoken, the minds of the bhikkhus of the group of five we're liberated from the taints of non-clinging. By non-clinging, yeah. Yeah, so they did it. These are the Buddha's former companions who were so upset that he went soft and ate food and you know got his strength back. And then he uh, woke up and he came back and, and helped them to see the Dharma. So it's kind of sweet. Um, so now, this being the second discourse, now there are five liberated being, fully liberated being, six, counting the Buddha, in the world. So that's pretty impressive. Um, happened right around this time, actually, around the middle of July, it is said that this discourse was spoken. 
And what got what did it for them is that uh, they were given the teaching on not self. No one had ever told them that they didn't have an atta, and so um, they were kind of attached to that in some way. And this was the last thread. We may have a little bit more than that in case we weren't liberated by reading these first two suttas that were very effective. Um, but the Buddha went on to teach for another 45 years, and that's why we have so many suttas to read. Um, but he, he then, um, there's a nice story about his uh, early teaching career in the Vinaya, um, which we're not going to read any of the Vinaya, but um, it goes through how he came to give these sermons and also um, how he ended up meeting his uh, main disciples, Sariputta and Mogalana, who eventually show up. Um, and so we'll go on to his third sermon next, which is some colloquially called the fire sermon, um, where he runs into a group of, it says a thousand, I think that's just meant to be a lot, um, a thousand matted hair ascetics who worship fire. And these were, so these were a, a group, they were called Jatilas, I think. Um, and they believe, I don't know exactly what they believe, but part of their uh, ritual is that they uh, tend a fire, a holy fire, and they keep it going and they worship it and they have beliefs around that and ideas of purification and so forth. So they're serious religious practitioners, but not at all uh, really into what the Buddha discovered about letting go as the path. Um, so we'll, uh, Carol, did you have a comment? I have a question um, just to wrap up this last. Yeah, sorry, I'm moving on with the story, but yes, anything more on this one? That's okay, I'm excited to get to the next one too, but I have kind of a practical question, and that is that I have glimpses of not-self through practice mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, study, and when I do, I feel much better. I suffer less, and that's true. Yes. But do you have... Um, suggestions for how to keep that close more often is it just more practice more study or well, any it's it's suggested here um in that paragraph that that uh you read actually <laughs> any kind of feeling perception etc um should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus this is not mine this i am not this is not myself so you can literally um, have an experience and just bring to mind as a reflection, this is not me or not myself. Um, that's actually a repetition. Yeah, it's repetition. It's a valid way of slowly shifting perception over time. That uses the door of the, of the mind, you know, the intellectual mind. You can also use um, more of an experiential door. There are sort of uh, tricks that you can do. So for example, if you're um, just sitting quietly, Tricks are great. We should all have lots of tricks. Um, so you're sitting quietly experiencing, say, during meditation or looking out the window, and you can ask the question, who is experiencing this? Um, and as you ask that, at least often as I ask that, there's a little shift in experience. It changes to being a little bit sharper, a little bit uh, fresh. There's a freshness to it. Because at the moment that you ask who is experiencing this, you can't have a self. Um, the, the mind opens beyond whatever conception of self it had. 
And if you can try to sustain that shift in experience, uh, you'll familiarize your system with the feeling of not self. It's, it's effective over time, but probably not each individual instance, but over time it, it does have an effect. So that's one, another way. Thanks. Yeah, it's definitely worth, um, and we need tricks for anatta because the self doesn't want to let go. Uh, it's very uh, convinced about its own importance. And uh, we're doing a kind of a tricky practice of undermining a lot of things that we think we need to survive. But if we just do the practices, it's okay. <laughs> it'll, it'll unfold itself somehow. Um, all right. So are we ready to go on to the, um, the fire sermon, which I was starting to give a little background about? That's SN3528. 3528.28, um, called Burning. And this one was spoken to these matted heresetics. Um, the Buddha's uh, following gets much bigger at this point because there's a thousand of them that he converts in this um, particular, uh, that he awakens actually in this particular sutta. But it's said that he, um, it's kind of sweet, it's said that he reflected beforehand when he was meeting with these guys, um, how could I teach them such that they will uh, understand, such that they will open? So this is an evolution in the Buddha's understanding about how, how to teach. Remember when we were talking about the background to the turning of the wheel sutta, uh, we talked about how he was walking, he was walking before he was going to give this sermon, he walked along the road and he ran into Upaka, who was just a single practitioner, and Upaka said, wow, you know, you look great, <laughs> effectively. Who are you? What are you? And so the Buddha said, I am awake. And then um, Upaka says, well, who are you? Who is your teacher? I want to get some of what you've got. And so the Buddha makes this sort of expansive declaration of, I have no teacher. I'm fully self-awakened Buddha. I've seen everything. I have no suffering. You know, he's sort of, it's all true. He's not being grandiose, but Upaka hears it as grandiose and says, you know, may it be so, and, and doesn't listen anymore. So the Buddha kind of realizes, well, that's not a very good approach for teaching. So then he gives those first two sermons to the ascetics um, of the group of five, and he gives them teachings that work for them. Um, by the second time, he got teachings that work completely for them. And so then the third teaching is much harder, right? He's teaching people who are practicing in a completely different stream and so he actually reflects ahead of time, how might I be able to speak to these folks such that it's effective for them? I think it's really sweet. And so he gives this teaching, the fire sermon, also called the, what is it? The Adita something sutta, um, which means burning. So does everybody have the sutta up at this point? Yeah, okay. So would somebody like to um, read the first two Paragraphs. Sure. How about Kurt? Well, okay. Oh, Beverly raised her hand. Well, Kurt had his hand up before, and then um, Val went. So why don't you start, Kurt? You're muted. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Gaia at Gaia's head, together with a thousand bhikkhus. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, all is burning. 
And what bhikkhus is the all that is burning? The eye is burning, forms are burning, eye consciousness is burning, eye contact is burning, and whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hatred, with the fire of delusion, burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, I say. Thank you. Yeah, it's quite dramatic, isn't it? Um, so he, he chooses this fire imagery, right? It's pretty interesting. So these are people who worship fire. So he's going to tell them, I'll tell you about fire. Everything is on fire. Um, and so he speaks in their language. This is kind of the beginning of um, the Buddha starting to get uh, more sophisticated and nuanced about how he speaks with people. I don't know how nuanced this is, but at least he speaks in the um, kind of the language that makes sense to them. Um, and let's see. So this is all about the eye and forms. Are there, um, well, let me, maybe I'll just uh, pause there and say, uh, there's sort of a sequence here, right? Eye forms, eye consciousness, etc. Is that reminiscent of anything in particular? Sort of. It looks a little bit like dependent origination. Um, so he hasn't fully formed the uh, teachings on dependent origination. He doesn't give those until later, although he did apparently reflect on dependent origination during his time under the Bodhi tree. After he woke up, um, he didn't leap right up and rush out to teach. He actually sat and contemplated for a while um, and what it, it is said that he contemplated was dependent arising, that sequence of 12 in forward and reverse and both forward and reverse. These are the initial suttas of the Udana. Um, for those of you who know the other books, uh, talks about that there. Um, so he has some sense of the sequence of how these things unfold. And this, this sutta is, is about the quality of dukkha. So we saw that the first one had references to impermanence, and that was in fact when uh, Kundanya woke up and he found, discovered that all that is of the nature to arise is of the nature to pass away. That was the first characteristic. The Anatta Lakana Sutta is obviously about not self, so it's about the third characteristic. And the fire sermon is about dukkha. <laughs> um, so that's also, you know, these three suttas are the reason why those three characteristics are highlighted. Um, across the teachings. So what does it mean that something is burning with the fire of lust, hatred, and delusion? Does that have any resonance? Is this really just for, um, you know, fire worshipers, or is there some uh, meaning for that in your practice too? Val, you're muted. 
we're talking about the taints, right? I mean, is that what those you're are the three taints? Yeah. Do yeah. you associate them with fire? You might. There might be no. Um, well, is... I do for for anger, for aversion, for the for the um, extremes of desire, for the extremes of aversion. Yes, I I would. Yeah. Yeah. There's a way in which they kind of consume us, isn't it? They kind of burn on our our consciousness such that we get narrow, we don't see as much, so forth. I have just something personal related to that. Actually, it was even before I was really studying Buddhism, but I remember the first time I ever in my life, adult life, actually felt real anger. And I threw a shoe at my, I won't say at my son, fortunately he ducked. But I mean, I remember I saw red, I saw black, I was on fire for sure. It was yeah. a I really felt anger as, an, as a woman or an adult. And uh, it was shocking to me. And that was that powerful. Yeah. yeah, thank you. That's a great example. Carol. And sort of spinning out of control, like just... Yeah. And it reminds me of thinking how, how thoughts can be that way, just burning and escalating yeah. and just kind of consuming everything in their path. And yeah. Yeah. I think there's, yeah, Susan. Uh, the way that um, Nibbana is described as a cooling, that's where, since that makes so much sense to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, cooling off. Uh, <clears throat> dying of the embers, fading out of the of these flames. So we're starting to see some of the imagery that goes throughout the suttas, actually, but it's introduced maybe first here. Um, it's it's also useful uh, to understand that in the Indian conception of fire, there was a sense of clinging within fire. Like it was it was thought that fire is kind of a potential in the universe and when fire appears and you know some wood catches fire it's because the fire has grabbed onto the wood and made itself manifest by having the fuel there. Um, in fact the word upadana which means clinging also means fuel. Those are the same word in Pali. So we have this sense of, um, of burning the mind is burning with these you know the fire comes into the mind the fire of the taints grabs onto the mind and it and it's burning with these challenges these difficulties kim yeah um just i guess it's an aside kind of but one that in india i saw uh, another religious group that had um they worship maybe you know about them iron and they have a fire going all the time and in the fire are all these metal objects on that are heated up constantly and they're the same ascetics that sleep on bale, beds of nails okay so they the yeah there they have a ladders to heaven they have ladders on their on their on their compound to, to climb but this the fire and the metal heated all the time is part of their whole worship thing I don't know even what the name, I don't recall now what they're called, but Interesting. another early group, early yeah. aesthetic, aesthetic group, I think. Yeah. yeah, I don't know the name of that group either, um, but it's funny while you were saying that, and I hadn't thought of this before, there are references in the suttas to the Buddha saying, imagine um, an iron skillet heated all day, 
And then what you do is you throw a drop of water on it and it dissipates instantly. But maybe the idea of something that had been heated on a fire all day was well known in India at the time. He was probably referencing something that, uh, this is a speculation on my part, but he might have been referencing something that would have been familiar to people. Thank you for that example. Kurt. Uh, what comes to me is an image of sitting in the fire, mm. sitting and surrounded by the suffering that's intense and in a sense sort of burning us up. Yeah. This, um, do you mean as an actual thing that happens during practice? You know, we sit and the defilements come up and we have to kind of sit with them. Yeah, exactly. Sitting yeah. in the fire. Yeah. Sitting in the fire and being willing to feel that and be equanimous about it. Yeah. It's um, also part of witnessing too. I think some sometimes some seems to me I've read something about <clears throat> witnessing being part of sitting in the fire of of you know other, another suffering. Yeah. Yeah, so being able to hold the pain of another, like in a chaplaincy kind of role. Yeah, we have to be a little bit careful in that the, um, the Buddha uh, goes on. We'll see, we get the same uh, pericope <laughs> coming later in this one about revulsion and so forth. Um, but he's, uh, he doesn't quite instruct them that they should just sit and let these things burn, but to understand at the same time that the burning is coming through lust, hatred, and delusion, as well as these other things. And so it's not simply that we have to just sit there and endure it um, uh, blindly, in a sense, and then that will, that will alone be what burns it up. The Buddha always adds in his teaching the, um, the wisdom part, the fact that we have to understand what's going on with that. Because there's a pretty much an endless supply of fuel <laughs> from our past of things that could come and burn. So we're, we're not actually going to burn it all out. That's what the Jains were trying to do. The Jains at the time, which was a big rival sect of the Buddhists. And they've, um, the Jains have survived even to this day. So they were successful also, in a sense. Um, they have the understanding, they have the belief that um, you will purify all of your karma. So you will literally burn off all of your bad karma from the past through doing only pure acts during this lifetime. And that is how you will become free. It's a subtle shift um, because of course we do want to, you know, cultivate wholesome qualities and let go of unwholesome qualities. That's all part of the Buddhist teachings also. Um, but we are not going to get rid of, there is no escape through karma. You know, we're not going to burn off all of our old karma and have only, therefore, sit and enjoy all the good karma. Uh, there's the only escape is out of karma. Uh, but the, the path to get there is through good karma. It's a subtle distinction. Um, does that make sense on some level? It's not really covered in this sutta. I'm now adding other teachings in to fill in around what, what's said here. Okay, so um, let's go on with the next paragraph because it, it helps us understand what the framework of the teachings here is. The previous one um, uh, was about the five aggregates. This one is not about the five aggregates. It's a different framework. So uh, let's see what that is. Um, 
Would someone read the one, how about Beverly, since you were uh, volunteered before, the ear is burning. Starting at the ears burning, uh, one yeah. paragraph or? Yeah. Okay. The ear is burning. The mind is burning. And whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hatred, with the fire of delusion. Burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, I say. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I realize a lot of it was ellipsed out, but the, the, the framework here is the six sense bases. So we have the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. Those are considered all to be uh, sense, sense bases. We would tend to talk mostly about five here in the West, but the mind is added in the Buddhist teachings. And for each of them, you can imagine unfolding this whole thing. So, you know, ear sounds, ear consciousness, ear contact, and whatever feeling arises with ear contact is condition, etc. And then for each one. Um, so this would be a very long sutta if those were all uh, written out and unfolded. But I have a story about this, which is that um, uh, when I was going through, this is many years ago, I was studying this um, in a class. I was uh, one of the students and we were asked to memorize, just like I did earlier with you guys, um, to memorize something from each uh, week, you know, each, each whenever interval between the classes. And so I had memorized the beginning of this sutta and um, for some reason my name came up in class and the Teacher said, oh, great, you can recite the beginning of that. So I did, and you know, I started with all is burning, and what is the all that is burning? And I went through um, that paragraph. And the teacher said, oh, that was so nice. Why don't you, why don't you keep going? And um, so I went on, and, you know, and I said, I, but she said, no, no dot, dot, dots. And so I, I ended up um, reciting the entire sutta, it turned out. And you know, I got to the end of all six uh, and she said, well, that's great, but do you know the, the rest about the revulsion? And I said, yeah, I, I memorized that too. I thought I had just memorized the eye consciousness part and that part. So she said, well, read that too. So, you know, I ended up um, actually with, without knowing that I could, I recited this entire sutta um, based on uh, just remembering chunks of it. And I understood uh, at that moment experientially what it is that those people were doing in memorizing this and why, and that it actually isn't that hard. Once you have various chunks, you can just plug in the ear and then you just plug in the nose and you plug in, you know, and there's only a few words that change per paragraph, um, but you can end up reciting the whole thing. It took about five minutes, I'd say, to recite this entire sutta with not having any ellipses in there. Um, and it's actually a good exercise. Uh, I won't uh, ask you all to do that unless you want to, but uh, it's a good exercise, it turns out, to say all those things because the repetition, it starts to get into your system. You know, once you, you know, when you read it, you just say, oh, blah, 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 blah. I'm just going to skip down because we're so used to reading for efficiency. But efficiency is not the point of um, the suttas. 
they're, they have a different purpose, right? They're teaching, they're teaching and getting the teachings into us. So I just encourage, uh, I was surprised that I could do that. This was early in my practice and I thought, whoa, <laughs> but it ended up being okay. I could uh, mentally plug in the different things by, from memory. Um, okay, so this sutta from the end then on is very close to the other one. Did, you, did anyone notice that? Um, so it says, you know, seeing thus, the instructed noble disciple experiences revulsion or disillusionment or dispassion towards the I, forms, eye consciousness, eye contact, and whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition. And then we would say the same ear sounds, ear consciousness, ear contact. Another thing you can unfold six, six ways. Um, and then lo and behold, it's exactly the same. Experiencing revulsion, he becomes dispassionate through dispassion, his mind is liberated, etc. So at least the Buddha figured out that that last part works very well and uh, repeated it when he taught the thousand bhikkhus. And then um, we have again the same statement, elated those bhikkhus delighted in the, bhikkhu, in the blessed one statement. And while it was being spoken, the minds of the thousand bhikkhus were liberated from the taints by non-clinging. It's pretty cool. So suddenly there's a thousand people um, in the Sangha, thousand and six, I guess. Um, I should say also that uh, this word bhikkhus, it has a footnote in the book because they weren't technically monks of the Buddha. You know, they were fire worshiping ascetics, but for some reason the texts have um, put in bhikkhus there as people who were spiritual practitioners. So it was used maybe more generally than being literal, you know, people who had taken refuge in the Buddha and asked to go forth as monks, which is usually what you know, calling somebody a bhikkhu entails. So questions or comments on this one? Are you convinced that all these things are dukkha? That's what this, sermons about. Yeah, there's no solution through any of the sense doors. So it's a different framework. It, it frames it not in terms of these things that we identify with. That's why the five aggregates are chosen for the not self teaching. But for the um, for a teaching on dukkha, we should look at our sense experience, right? The sense doors, because that's where we take delight. You know, we take delight in our food and in our comfortable bed and in, you know, music or, you know, uh, tactile sensations. It would be blunt sex, you know, things like that. So, you know, we have a lot of pleasures that we're seeking through our sense doors. And uh, the Buddha points out, not that these things are actually all horrible and repulsive and you should hate them all, <laughs> in case that word gets, you know, evokes that for you. But instead, just to realize that these things are not ultimately satisfying. Um, they're not, they, they are subject to, there are places where the defilements can get in, right? Greed, hatred, and delusion can come through those sense doors and sense objects. And so it's, it's not that we have to hate them, because hatred is, after all, part of hatred, <laughs> the taint of hatred. Um, but we should be careful, we should be vigilant. This is a lot of the message of 
Buddhism is just to be mindful about that and how we interact with the world and, and to direct our mind in wholesome ways and to continue seeing with wisdom. I admit it's not really billboard quality stuff um, for American society, but uh, here we go. It's uh, something that we may understand somewhat experientially from just from living however many decades we have, you know. Have we succeeded in getting only pleasant sensation and no unpleasant sensation? I haven't. Uh, I've been at it for a while, some of you longer than me. Uh, and so it's kind of relieving <laughs> to have somebody say, well, actually, you haven't succeeded because you can't <laughs> succeed that way. But don't worry. Uh, the Buddha then immediately says there is a solution. You don't have to then say, well, you know, uh, there's no hope. Um, he says, actually, if you just redirect a little bit um, toward this sense of letting go of these things, of realizing that the problem is when the mind is gripping on, then we can be with the things of the world, and it's, it's, it's not a problem. We don't make it a problem. Yeah. Okay, we're nearly at the end. Um, oh, I had one more little... Uh, you know, since I'm giving you kind of stories and background around these historical teachings. Um, so far, there's a thousand and five people that the Buddha has uh, brought to awakening. Um, none of them, first of all, are Sariputta or Moggallana, who haven't arrived yet. So none of these are his main disciples, which end up being his chief disciples. The other interesting case is Kondanya, who is the very first person who reached stream entry and the first, you know, he's the first member of the Sangha. Um, so the interesting question is, who's Kondanya? You know, has anybody ever heard of him in the teachings? What did he do? Did he, um, you know, what happened to him after that? It's kind of an interesting question. It turns out um, he never turned into much of anything in the teachings, as far as we know. He didn't become a teacher that we hear about. He wasn't arahant after the second, you know, after the second sutta. Um, so he didn't need to keep practicing with the Buddha, or you know. He, so he apparently wandered off and did his own thing. But there is a sutta where he comes back and, um, and meets the Buddha again and shows up sometime much later in his... Um, and of course, you know, our storytelling mind says, oh, it's going to be a really interesting scene. It's not actually a very interesting scene. He, um, he shows up and says... Um, and he, he essentially comes to the Buddha and says, it's Kondanya, it's Kondanya, I am Kondanya. And the Buddha says something like, oh, okay, and then gives a teaching. <laughs> so it's, it turns out to be very unsatisfying for you know, those of us who want some dramatic element in there. But he does show up later, he doesn't just vanish, uh, since he is, after all, the ones that the gods all call up to heaven. Kondanya has understood, Kondanya has understood, and he gets the name Anya Kondanya. So he does appear later, but it's it's interesting that he never he doesn't he's not the a very prominent figure, and um, yeah, none of the major disciples have shown up yet. Um, so Sariputta and Mogalana come soon after eventually after this, and and then there are the other ones, Kasapa and um, Kachana and all the others that are named, Ananda, so forth. All right, so we need something else to read next time. Um, we've gone through the first three. 
I am happy just choosing something or if anybody has an area of practice or a subject that is interesting to you, I could uh, look into that and find some suttas on it. Or I will, I will simply um, come up with something and send an email to the list. Come up with something. Come up with something. <laughs> I will send you something. Great. Um, I know the group well enough. I'll be able to think of something that I think will be interesting. Val, you had a um, comment. Well, just another kind of question. But these these three sermons are so expensive, so it's important. And I know I've heard before somehow how things are organized in the suttas, but they seem to be spread out. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> and I know they're it? repeated in different places, but I'm. It's kind of interesting. It's not like. Yep, they're not suttas one, two, three in here. <laughs> they're in the third book of the teachings, um, scattered throughout because it's organized by subject, right? So the turning of the wheel is in the section on the truths, and the um, anatta lakana sutta is in the section on the aggregates, and the fire sermon is in the section on the six sense bases. That's why they're spread out, but they're given no prominence. Yeah, they're given no particular prominence in the text. It's interesting. It's an interesting comment. Um, good. Well, I want to respect our time. So thank you everyone for coming and I'll hope to see some of you next week. Have a wonderful week. I'll send you an email soon. Bye. Thank you, Kathy. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.